All right. So I guess as people trickle in, I will talk about a few of the things that I have been thinking about today, uh, which is going to be a little bit of a grab bag, but uh, we will, um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll talk some of this stuff through and then pretty quickly start taking calls if people have calls today. Uh, so I guess right at the top of mind, I just finished teaching today's uh, capital class. I've been doing this class that I started back in April through Michael Albert's thing, the School for Social and Cultural Change. Um, we always meet on Sunday afternoons EST because that's a time that's like sane, at least for everybody. Uh, if you're on the West Coast, you know, we start at one. So that's like 10 in the morning on the West Coast. And if you're in the UK or Europe, you know, it's, it's, you know, still early evening. Uh, you know, if you're in South Korea, not much we can do about that one, but, uh, you know, but otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, covers, uh, covers just about everybody. So we are doing that during the April and May session of, um, the school for social and cultural change. The class is called analyzing Marx's arguments, capital volume one, Capital is a big book. We did not get through that much of it uh, during that first session. Uh, we were planning on continuing during the July-August SSCC session, but then um, SSCC is on a break. I think they're probably going to be coming back next month. I'm actually not 100% on that, but uh, regardless, it's on a break right now, and we didn't want to lose momentum, so we just switched over to the class to uh, my Patreon and we've just been kind of continuing as we were before. So we're up to, uh, you know, we just finished chapter 16. I'm going to be gone uh, next weekend because I'm going to be at a wedding. It's actually uh, Deep State Cuba's wedding for anybody who watches This is Revolution uh, in uh, Canada. So uh, we're going to be continuing next week with 17 and 18. But, you know, 16 is already, uh, you know, anybody who's in that class should feel good about it because that is about 13 chapters later than uh, most people who try to read Capital give up. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, good, good work, everybody there. Uh, so chapter 16 that I've just been reading is a really interesting chapter for reasons that I think, you know, might be interesting even to people who may be listening now who aren't in that class and may have never read Capital. This is, um, you know, what I was talking about at the end of today's class. So the chapter is called Absolute and Relative Surplus Value, which I know is not a fascinating uh, combination of words on their face. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, um, the distinction is about two ways that capitalists can try to extract surplus value from workers. So surplus value, as, as Marx uses the term, um, the idea is that when... You show up every day, you know, at work. Um, that part of the hours of work that you're putting in, or part of whatever you're producing uh, during those hours at work, if you're like an assembly line, or you know, whatever. I mean, Mark says in this chapter that you know that like a teacher at a private school, if they're you know they're working to enrich the owner of the school, so it doesn't really matter that they're um, that what they're making is you know knowledge and not widgets. Um, so the hours that you're, you're at work, well, some of those are producing, you know, uh, your own wages, essentially, right? In other words, some of the value that you're creating during that time at work, you get back in your, in your wages. So, 
you know, if you are just producing widgets, uh, then, uh, then the, you know, X number of widgets is the equivalent to, you know, you're being paid the cash value of X number of widgets. But if that was all you were making, then your employer would have no incentive for hiring you. There'd be no point. So you better also be making, you know, you better be making Y more than, uh, you know, you'd be better be making Y number of widgets. Uh, so the employer is getting something beyond what they're paying you. And the difference between X and Y is surplus value. Or a different way of putting that, as Marx says earlier in the book, that in every society, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, in every form of class society, in every form of society that's divided between different economic classes, uh, the ruling class of that society is always extracting surplus labor from whoever the immediate producers are, whether those are peasants or slaves or serfs or modern workers. Uh, in other words, that in every class society, um, the immediate producers are always doing an amount of work that corresponds to or that just is. It's very simple for agricultural societies that, you know, a lot of the time you're working, you're producing directly the food that you yourself are going to be eating, right? You know, you're, you're producing stuff for the immediate consumption of you and your family. But if you're a peasant or a serf, you're also producing stuff for the consumption of the Lord. And um, same for, um, you know, even, even a slave, right, is, spends part of the day producing an amount of cotton that is equivalent to uh, what their own upkeep costs, right, what it costs the slave owner to, you know, buy the, the slave's food and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, of course, most of the day they're working to, for the benefit of the slave owner, right? In other words, most of the product of their labor goes to the slave owner. So the difference between that, you know, those two numbers, right, is the surplus. Or, again, under feudalism, it's way out of the open because even with slavery or at least the kind of slave system that I'm talking about there, there's like a sort of complicated equivalency of resources going on. But, um, but under feudalism, literally, the peasant spends part of the year uh, working in their own fields and part of the year working in the Lord's field. Or, you know, they, uh, maybe they, it's all one field, depending on how a different country's system of feudalism works. But, you know, some of the crops are literally taken, you know, taken to the, the Lord to feed him and his family and his court. Um, so... You know, and, and there's like this direct force that's involved in that, that, they, uh, that you don't, um, that, you know, there's no, um, you know, if you don't give up uh, those crops or if you don't spend the part of the right part of the year working in Lord's Field, uh, there's going to be a conversation with some guys with swords and it's not going to be fun for you. Under capitalism, some things are very different, but some things are the same. Uh, the most important thing that's different is that it's not forced in the same way. Um, Marx argues that there's a kind of force that's involved because, you know, if you don't, uh, if you don't find a capitalist to employ you, uh, since workers don't own their own means of production, if you don't find a capitalist to employ you, then, you know, you're not going to be able to eat. Uh, so, you know, he has this acid phrase in one of the earlier chapters about workers under capitalism being doubly free. They're legally free to make a contract with any employer who will have them, and they're free from any means of supporting themselves other than finding an employer that will have them. Um, 
Okay, I see I've got a call, and I do want to go to calls real quick. But before I take the call, um, I, I do just want to really quickly get to the absolute and relative surplus value distinction, since it's interesting, and that's what I started out with. So um, a really sort of quick and dirty way of thinking about the difference between these two kinds of surplus value, right? Remember, surplus value are the hours that you work where you're not producing the amount of value that gets returned to you in your wages, you're returning, you're producing surplus value. Um, and there are two ways, right? There are two main ways, at least assuming for the sake of simplicity that where workers' wages are remaining constant, uh, that their, their consumption is the same. And of course, oftentimes capitalists will try to produce more surplus value by slashing wages. But um, Marx says if we sort of abstract away from that for a minute and pretend the wages are staying constant, there are two ways that capitalists produce surplus value. Um, one of them is what he calls absolute surplus value, and the other is calls relative, relative surplus value. So absolute surplus value is where the way that the, num the number of hours a day that you're working not to meet your own needs but to enrich the capitalist is increased not by, uh, is increased in the first way, the absolute uh, surplus value. It's been increased by extending the length of the working day. A lot of the book is spent on precisely this subject, the sort of long struggle for a, just a 10-hour uh, you know, legal limit on working hours in England in the 19th century. But then um, the other way, you know, relative surplus value, is where the capital, you know, you're somebody who's not working any more hours. They're working eight hours before and after but um, in that example, but uh, it takes less of those eight hours to generate the value that goes back to workers and their wages because in some way or another the production process has been made more efficient. Uh, we can, um, you know, one, you know, so two quick and dirty examples to sort of get the, um, you know, get the distinction straight in your head would be uh, an increase in absolute surplus, surplus value is achieved by, you know, like contemporary employers who will do like time theft. They'll do stuff like uh, force workers uh, to uh, to clock out, but then keep working for another hour or something like that because they've, you know, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to pay them extra. Uh, so that's a way of achieving a absolute surplus value increase. But a relative increase is achieved by like Amazon where they install electronic surveillance to keep track of exactly how many uh, books, uh, you know, a where, where worker to warehouse is packaging up per hour or per minute. Uh, so, um, so they, you know, they've gotten more work out of them in that time, which means that the number of hours a day that the Amazon warehouse worker has to work to produce the equivalent of what they're getting back in wages is going to be less, you know, is going to be less and less of the eight hours total as they find ways. That one's a pretty brutal example. Nicer examples just involve, uh, like, better machines to make the production process more efficient. Uh, but relative, you know, absolute surplus value is when the extra surplus value is coming out. The extra hours that the worker is working, not for himself or herself, but for the capitalist, is taken out of the worker's leisure time. Uh, relative surplus value is when the extra hours are taken uh, not out of the worker's leisure time, but out of the time that they would have otherwise had to spend working for their own paychecks because because uh, that's been uh, that's been decreased. A lot of other interesting stuff going on in that chapter, but um, 
I got a couple calls, so let's go ahead and take these. Let's start with Schnarf. Hey, what's up? Um, I had a quick question about um, Sweezy, the American Marxist. And so two things. Well, first and foremost, what you were talking about, there's more elaboration on that in, in, uh, in volume three of Capital. Um, especially with ways that 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 they kind of uh, maximize their profit, and it talks about the relationship between I think it was the relationship between um, commercial capital, industrial capital, and financial capital. But there's Marx outlines about like seven or eight different ways, which are funny because in his time it didn't make as much sense as it does in our time, and it always pays to read volume three, maybe first actually before you read volume one because i think all the juicy stuff is in volume three so my question now is is this i don't know much about sweezy and the american marxians but i do know that at some point they they default to sarafa pietro sarafa and they supplement their conception of the theory of value and the cost of a commodity through what sarafa's work is I've looked at Sarafa's work very minimally because I just don't have access to it. <laughs> I can't find it and I can't read it. But I was wondering if you could elaborate on the American connection to Sarafa from the American Marxists, because I think it's interesting to see how the people back then used to think and how they kind of drew the lines together. Yeah. Um, so try to think how much of that question I'm actually going to be able to answer. Uh, I know Robin Hanhel, by the way, uh, who's a fairly, I have not read this book, but he, I just bring him up because he's a, he's a pretty clear writer. So he might be a a good person to, um, to look into on this. Uh, He has a, um, he has a book called radical political economy, uh, Sarafa versus Marx. And, um, and, uh, you know he's uh, he's pretty. Um, uh, you know I, I think he's pretty Srafa uh, sympathetic. So I don't know a ton about Sweezy and some of those guys, and I, I'm not sure this get, this quite gets to your question. But I I, I think mm-hmm. that like one thing I one thing I do know about them that you know that might kind of factor in here is that those guys really pick up uh well you know what Lenin had already said uh in uh in the you know imperialism the highest stage capitalism and all that which is um you know that that you know like this idea of like monopoly capitalism is is really important to um to their analysis which i think is something that a lot of people a lot of you know people with you know, radical lefty impulses will sort of hear that phrase not along because they go, okay, well, uh, it's sort of commonsensical that, uh, you know, capitalism now versus, you know, whatever capitalism 150 years ago when capital came out uh, is, you know, that like firms are often much more concentrated, right, than, than they were then, uh, you know, certainly like, you know, certain kinds of like, if nothing else, intellectual property kind of monopoly rents play a bigger role in the system. And, um, 
And, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, monopolies are bad. So if you think capitalism is bad, sort of adding the word monopoly to the beginning sounds, uh, you know, sounds like, yeah, right. That's that 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 seems right. Um, but it's actually a pretty radical departure from from Marx in in some ways. Right. So because um, if you if you read Capital, Marx's analysis of how capitalism works is all about competition, uh, like like really crucially all about competition. So, you know, in the, you know, in the early chapters, he's, um, I mean, you know, he starts off the book, I think this is often something that, like, really surprises people who are reading it, and, like, maybe all they've read is, like, the Communist Manifesto before then. And, you know, the Communist Manifesto, of course, at least once you get past the introduction with the stuff about the specter starting haunting Europe, starts by talking about class struggle, and that's the concept people, you know, for good reasons, mostly associate with Marx, but... You know, you, yeah, you have to get like six chapters into Capital before you get anything about class struggle. In some ways, ten chapters, and in um, and, and he starts out by talking about monopoly, by, by talking about sorry commodities. It's like okay, um, and then he spends a lot of time talking about money and what money is and how that works. And then he kind of puts together the thoughts, and there's um, the circuit of Capital, which is MCM, right? money, commodity, money is. Wow, money is uh, money, commodity, money. Um, so, do you think there was a there was a significant departure from the? Well, here here's the, here's a yeah. better question. What do you what do you think is orthodox Marxism? Sure. So, I think that the sense in which the Sweezy stuff, from what I know about it, is a departure from orthodox Marxism. Is that the like when Marx talks about you know that circuit of capital, the MCM, right? Right. The, um, like he makes a really, really big deal of saying in capital that um, that I mean and this and this part is like sort of you don't in some sense don't need all the technical economic theory for it's just sort of a very like um, intuitive part of like what Marxism is all about is just like well it's it's not the problem with capitalism is not that the capitalists are bad people. You know, or you know, maybe they are because that's what you know. That's what the uh, imperatives of the system select for, but that's not the sort of core of the problem, right? I mean, you know, he he talks about how, um, you know, as the capitalist is, you know, using money to get capital or other commodities and and you know, get more money, that you know, he says the capitalist is like a rational miser, right? The miser is like a capitalist gone mad, and he says that the capitalist, you know, he really talks a lot about how the capitalist is just kind of this MCM circuit, this accumulation of, of capital in human form, that they're just going to, they're just kind of a vessel for, you know, MCM, uh, the, uh, you know, using money to accumulate money. And, but his whole analysis, like, like why, why is the capitalist a vessel for that? I mean, it's, it's not just that like, cause you know, if, all else being equal, I mean, the capitalists could act anyway, right? Like, 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 why is it in particular, if we're, we're not just talking about the moral character of capitalists, that they'll act this way? And so I think competition plays a really crucial role in, in his explanation because, you know, basically the capitalist who doesn't just act like MCM in human form, right, whose decisions aren't all driven by those imperatives is going to go out of business because they're going to be outcompeted by, by other capitalists, uh, so, so can I ask you another quick question? Well, sure. I was just going to say. I was just going to say, though. I mean, I, I think that given that, 
like once you start talking about no 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 we're actually in a new phase of capitalism now now we're we're in, we're in monopoly capitalism then you might be right that's a whole empirical argument to have but I, I think I think it pays to look at these people, but I also think it's important to like define where everyone comes from, right? Like yeah. my 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 reading of capital is probably very different than your reading of capital. So I, like I always like to know because I, I read your stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> I like knowing who you are, um, yeah. and, and I, I don't get that from your writing. I only get that if I ask you. So what do you think sure. about the Frankfurt School excluding Marcuse? Um, like uh, like Adorno and probably like uh, Fromm really being kind of like, do you find them to be a departure from Orthodox Marxism? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so 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 I should, you know, I mean, all I was going to say earlier about monopoly capitalism is like, if you believe that, you might or might not be correct. Again, that's an empirical argument, but um, you're certainly going pretty far away from how Marx understood how um, how capitalism works, and then I think the other half of the Sarafa stuff that I'm probably not even going to be able to speak to as well as the sort of value theory part. But yeah, Frankfurt School. Um, I think Sarafa was scared because yeah. you, you know you know Sarafa is the one that smuggled the letters for for Gramsci, right? Yeah. So I think I think he was shit scared. I think he ended up. Um, disguising a lot of what he wanted to say in the uh in the academic and economic sense but what he was trying to do was trying to dispel probably the austrian perspective i think that's what he was doing but he wasn't going to call himself a marxist he wasn't going to call himself a leftist because he saw what they did to gramsci and a lot of people in italy and i think he was always terrified of that um, that's my personal like theory as to why when I read him, I don't hear, I don't hear Gramsci. Like I've read Gramsci and I don't see it in Sarafa at all. I see the theoretical perspective, the same, right? Um, cultural hegemony, which in this case would be, uh, economic hegemony, I, I guess you would be the same way to put it just yeah. in the soft science of economics. So I'm, I'm curious. So like, okay, so, so the Frankfurt school, you would, you wouldn't consider from, or any of those people to be Marxist in any sort of way. Well, I didn't say that. Right. I mean, I think that the, I'm not like super duper interested in sort of like, you know, policing the boundaries and what counts as Marxism or doesn't count as Marxism. But I think okay. that there, there is a, um, you know, obviously those people come out of that tradition and they're influenced by it in lots of ways. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, Whatever. I mean, I, I think um... I think they reject Lenin. That's what I think it is. Is that is I think somewhere along the line, the the American Marxists and the Western Marxists they, they look at Lenin and they go a different way. So is Orthodox Marxism Marxist Leninism, or is it Marxism prior to to Lenin? Well... In your opinion. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the short answer would be more like the second one, but I also think that like. I always want to know what people really mean when they say Leninism, because I uh, think you know, because I think that Lenin, um, you know, even like even in like nineteen nineteen or whatever, when he's when he's fighting with 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 Kautsky, right? He writes the Proletarian Revolution, the Renegade Kautsky. Even there, he's like, yeah, up until World War One, when they sold out, the German Social Democratic Party was like the model. Of, of what a workers' party should should be, and he uh, he seems like uh, it, in a lot of ways what you know what Lenin was was trying to do was was just apply sort of straightforward second international kind of Marxism to the 
you know, the special circumstances of the late Russian empire where like it's a police state. So you have to organize the party in a different way and all that stuff. And then I think under the pressure of the civil war in the last few years, that kind of became something different. But I mean, that's the, that was the sort of original uh, understanding, right? So, so all of that's just a way of saying like, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's as, as different as, as all of that, but I mean, like you did ask about the Frankfurt School, and I do want to talk about the Frankfurt School because I, I I think that the again I'm I'm not you know I'm not interested in in like super interested in saying oh this person's a Marxist that person's not a Marxist whatever I mean like like I'm I'm a, I'm happier to just talk about what's true and like if and like it's good to it's good to know what Marx thought because he was really smart and he 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 shared a lot of my starting points and goals. And so like, I, th- I think, I think that he's somebody with, with views worth taking really seriously, but I think that the, um, in, uh, but I think that the Frankfurt school stuff, it seems to me from what I know about it, that a lot of that stuff and, you know, sure. I mean, it starts with Gramsci even, but like a lot of this stuff is sort of motivated by this. Um, why did the revolution happen? Question. Like, like, you don't why- think it's why did the revolution failed? Uh, well, why maybe. did the revolution not take place? Well, that's what, that's what it, that second one's what yeah. I said, right? Oh, I, yeah, different. Why, I, I, I thought I thought that you meant it differently. Yeah, like like why did it take place, right? I mean, that, so uh, in other words, why is it that, like, yeah, that sort of came like there were um, obviously the Russian Revolution happened, and there was a there was a sort of you know wave of. Um, revolutionary activity in Western Europe, but it, it didn't really take hold. And it seems like, you know, what happened, right? You know, why is it that, uh, you know, because to the extent that Orthodox Marxism looks like it's, it's just going to make this really straightforward prediction that, well, workers are, are going to uh, rise up and get rid of capitalism because it's in their collective interest to do so. Um, it, it seems like a lot of, Frankfurt School stuff is tried to is sort of started for the question. Well, okay, that didn't happen, or at least it hasn't happened yet, or at least it hasn't happened in enough places consistently enough yet. So why not, right? What's the what's the thing? What's the thing that's that's stopping that from from happening? And it, and it seems to me that a lot of the Frankfurt School stuff is what happens if you um, sort of go looking for answers to that question in culture and psychology and things like that. And I'm not going to say that there's nothing there that like there, there are no, um, you know, there are no, like, I'm not going to say that there's like nothing that you can learn if you go looking at those places for answers to that. That's like a real insight. Right. I mean, I think that'd be too much, but I also, I'd also kind of question how much you really need to go looking for that. That's where I, I find, uh, I mean, I'm still reading some of this stuff, but I mean, I find some of the Vivek Chibber, uh, stuff really interested and useful just in terms of saying like, okay, is it really that workers are just irrational for, for some reason that like we could find out if we start spending all of our time thinking about culture or psychology or whatever that, you know, they're like in the grips of ideology and like that's the, the sort of core of the problem or is it that um, workers' interests are complicated and there are actually very often rational reasons for for workers to even even be reluctant about stuff as small scale as like organizing a union at their workplace, never mind like smashing the state and trying to organize a totally new kind of society. 
And I, I don't, you know, I don't think that's, so that's like the Chipper's new book, or I guess, mm-hmm. I guess there's a new, new one that's about to come out, but Chipper's last book, the class matrix is sort of an attempt to think about that. And, um, I don't think it's necessarily a council of defeat. Like, Oh, in that case, what are you going to do? Cause if it's not even always rational, I think that you just, but I think it does change sort of how you think about how to approach people and sort of go into workers with more of an organizer's mindset and less of a, Oh, you don't know what your own interests are. Cause you're in the grips of ideology mindset. Uh, there is a lot more that we could say about this. Uh, I, I think we could easily spend the next two hours talking about what we've been <laughs> talking about the last few minutes. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, the reason why I ask is because I think this is a good forum to ask these kind of questions. Sure. Because, like I said, I read what you write, so I want to know what goes through your head. Um, I have one more person I'd like to ask for a short answer because I don't want to take up too much time. But what do you think? Do you think that Rosa Luxemburg was a departure from Orthodox Marxism? Sorry about that, Schnarf. Uh, there was a phone call that came in and it interrupted it. But yeah, no, I agree. I think this is a good form. You, do you think? Do you think Rosa? Do you think Rosa Luxemburg was a departure from Orthodox Marxism? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going back until I, I, I figure where 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 you know. <laughs> well, look, it's not. I, okay, so I say two things about that. One, uh, I'm happy to answer that question, and then. Probably should take another caller, but the but then like the other, you know, and and my answer, I guess, for the record is not in any way that's super obvious to me. I think that like maybe with some of the work that she's doing on uh, like imperialism, international trade, and stuff, she's tried to uh, maybe even like some of the crisis theory stuff. Like she's tried to maybe uh, you know fill some gaps in traditional Marxism, but like I don't I don't know that she's saying anything that like in any major way conflicts with it. But look, I mean, by and large, Rosa Luxemburg seems like a representative of about as orthodox as, uh, as Marxism gets, you know. If there's a, if there's an important point of departure there, I'm not sure what it is. Um, you know, certainly I think, I think, yeah, I, I think that there's like not a, not a lot of space between her and Marx on, uh, on most things. I think that there's, I think that certainly like what she wrote about the Russian revolution and stuff is in some ways her being actually a more orthodox Marxist probably than Lenin and Trotsky were being at that point. Um, but, but I, but I guess the other thing I would say is that I'm not like, I'm not under the impression that like Marx just sort of figured everything out and had all the correct opinions about everything in 1867. And then like, everything that's gone wrong since then is just kind of people, um, you know, stepping off the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, I guess it'd be a red brick road in this case. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, um, I think that, you know, I think that Marx had the right goals and had, you know, a lot of really important insights and said a lot of stuff that's true, but, you know, it's, it's an ongoing project. You have to figure stuff out. You know, in some cases, it might be fair to say, well, Marx got, you know, X, Y, or Z wrong. Um, I, I actually kind of agree with what G.A. Cohen says in the uh, 2000 introduction to his book, Karl Marx's Theory of History, which is, like, basically that it's a little bit unfortunate that the, that the name, the sort of label that stuck for the school of thought later was Marxism and not, like, what Ingalls tried to make happen, which was scientific socialism, you know, and when I say try to make happen, I mean in like the mean girl sense, right? You know, that like try to make the word stick. Uh, that because um, you know scientific socialism would be a good label that like doesn't you know we don't you know 
like what we're worried about is like, okay, are you um, using our best empirical knowledge of the world to try to figure out how capitalism works and how we can get to socialism? And that's the really important question. And of course, since Marx did so much of that work, you know, you should kind of start with him and think about what he said. But like, whether you're, you know, agree or disagree with Marx at any given point, you know, is a. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm much more interested in whether you're right, right? So, uh, as far as like later Marxists, you know, I think some of them disagreed with Marx about stuff that Marx was right about, so they're wrong. You know, some of them, some of them disagreed with stuff him about stuff that's maybe a little weak in, in his own positions anyway. I think, I think you gotta, I think you gotta take it uh, a la carte. But uh, in any case, uh, since I do want to wrap up in the next few minutes, uh, and there are three callers, let's, uh, let's go ahead and go to the next one. Adam. Hi, Ben. Um, so the, you know, the, the to extract the, the surplus value, as you said, the, uh, the, the capitals are going to strive for improving either the relative or the absolute yeah. uh, surplus value. And states and governments have laws to prevent the most gross of, you know, um, abuses towards yeah. that end, right? Yep. But sometimes it's like I have observed like friends and family negotiating away their rights for 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 peanuts, right? Or or even totally, nothing. Yeah. Sure. In kind of like a like an an ideological like sieve that the company kind of uses to curate their their workers. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just I just wonder like should there be just like more absolute limits on what you know uh, a worker can negotiate away? Because it seems to be that like in any country other than maybe like France, that it's anybody can negotiate away any of their rights up to you know the point of you know you can't you can't uh, negotiate yourself into slavery, but that's the limit. Yeah, I mean to a point that's true, although. Um... Although even in the U.S., um, there are fortunately a lot of legal rights, a, a lot of legal limits to the uh, the extent to which you can negotiate your rights away. This is actually the end of uh, what is it, Chapter Ten, I think, of of Capital. Uh, the uh, yeah, the Working Day. It's this like giant chapter, uh, relatively early on. Uh, at the end of it, right, they would. You know, Marx is talking about how the only way for workers to collectively protect themselves against against capitalists sort of going nuts, trying to, you know, trying to extend, you know, have these absolute increases in surplus value that you get by extending the length of the working day beyond sort of running up against the natural limits and the length of the day and people sometimes need to sleep and stuff like that, is to have this kind of regulatory state which you know Marx calls the uh, was it like the Magna Carta of labor, you know the ten hours bill to uh, to limit working hours, and he he makes the point that like precisely the effect of that legislation is to stop workers individual workers from being able to to sort of freely negotiate away uh, their their rights. That the only way to right. hold on to everybody's rights is to prevent the race to the bottom. Exactly right to to limit individuals you know from from how you know like. You're increasing the sort of self, you know, the autonomy of everybody in the group by, you know, limiting it in a certain sense for individuals. 
And yeah, um, and that's and and so even in the U.S., I mean, we 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 do have a lot of limits like that. I mean, so um, limits on you know, even though you know you can still agree to do overtime and you know whatever, but at least like um, it's generally hard to force you know generally hard to force you to work overtime, and uh, you have to be paid you know paid at a higher rate. Um, so you can't just be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm perfectly happy to work, you know, 12 hours a day <laughs> instead of eight hours a day, you know, for the same rate per hour. And, um, and, and I'm happy to sign a contract, say it'll do that forever and whatever, right? There are limits on your ability to do that. The minimum wage is certainly an obvious example of that. I mean, this is actually the point that like libertarians and conservatives always make when they criticize minimum wage laws or minimum wage increases. They'd be like, well, come on, if somebody's willing to work for less than that, why should they be able to? And it's like, well... Because if they're able to, you know, then very quickly they have to, right? That's that's how that works with that race from the bottom. Yeah, I can hear you. All right. Did you get my question about the Alberta workers? Oh, uh, no, I I missed that somehow. Can you say it again? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was having bad connection problems. So the impetus actually, when you mentioned um, forced overtime, the impetus for my question was uh, because in Alberta, in uh, Fort McMurray, some of the the, um, supplementaries are – or – support workers for like construction and contract workers are being uh, forced to work overtime and the the labor relations board in alberta said that it's uh, that they have an unauthorized strike because all of them are choosing to not work ov- voluntary overtime <laughs> <laughs> jesus christ okay yeah, yeah no yeah. that's <laughs> yeah uh, right i mean that's the thing though like um, you can't, I mean, ultimately all of this stuff is always just kind of a function, you know, sometimes it's a delayed function or it's complicated or whatever, but like on some level, this is all always just kind of a function of the facts on the ground, right? The, the, the power relationships between class forces. So, um, you know, that you could get, um, I mean, because even something like, okay, that, like, our, like, um, laws limiting uh, the number of hours you could be made to work per day, I mean, it's like, okay, I mean, this, uh, like, a sort of crude under the table getting away, way of getting around it is the sort of time clock fraud that I, I talked about earlier yeah. at the beginning of the episode, but, like, what you're talking about is, like, a sort of fancy above board guys with suits coming up with like memos, you know, sort of way of getting around it, you know, that like, but either way, if they have the power to be able to do so, they'll be able to. I mean, the only thing that's ever been able to stop that is like, you know, strong, you know, strong enough unions and, you know, political movements. Yeah. It's uh, because it's a conservative uh, government in Alberta right now. So that's, that's their labor relations board uh, (laughs) doing that to them. Oh, well, thanks for Frank for uh, for answering yeah. my questions. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for the call. My connection's right. really bad. All right, no worries. All right, Amanda, last call before we we wrap up for today. Are you with us, Amanda? Yes. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um. So I just want your to get your take on. The potential opportunity for um, 
for this um, rail workers labor dispute to really be a, a choke point for for making some real change if we can get in solidarity with them because I hear there's also 29 <clears throat> West Coast ports that are in high stakes negotiations with their unions as well yeah. and and I'm sure that you are already aware of this story and I am not um, <clears throat> I, don't, yeah. I wouldn't describe myself as a Marxist because I don't know enough about it except that I can sure. see that this is an opportunity and I just want to make sure that the people that I'm listening to that know way more about this kind of thing than me know and are starting to move in a direction to get something done maybe yeah, I mean, in this particular case, um, I mean, some of these details you might know more about than I do, but I mean, I think that the if if there was a a rail strike, I mean, that would be huge because I mean, there's already, um, you know, there's obviously already been these you know supply chain snafus for for months, and this is yes, so and it's working conditions. It's I I urge you to please look into it. Um, Socialist Alternative had a pretty good article on it. If mm -hmm. you're into podcasts, um, This Machine Kills did a really good, um, a really good episode just recently, and so did Well, There's Your Problem, which is another podcast in that in that leftist area. So yeah. I just I, I urge it because right now where it is right now is the the tentative agreement has to go to all the 150,000 union members to be ratified. And there's there's talk that because there's the working condition changes they wanted are not in there. Yeah. So they're talking about not doing it. So this is the time. This is the time when each of those union workers is sitting at their kitchen table and trying to figure out whether they can afford to strike. So how do we make sure they know that those of us who are not rail workers, union people, who aren't union people at all, but want to be part of some big change. Yeah. How do we, how do we, I'm asking you as a, as a person who has a platform, how does, yeah. I don't even know how we go about it, but I'm, I'm sign, sign me up for grunt work wherever. Cause this is a moment. I think yeah, I mean, 40% for sure. of the U S imports come in through those West coast ports and they're in negotiations right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, I agree. Like I think a, <clears throat> Um, you know, rail strike or you know, longshoreman strike or both. Jesus uh, would uh, would would be would be giant, right? I mean, I think if it happens, and you know, up until it happens, I'm not sure how much you know we could do except to you know, talk about it. You know, whatever platforms we have, and you know, express our views. But I think that like if it does happen, that I'm sure like. I'm sure people will be organizing, certainly in a you know local way, and I hope also a national one. You know, sort of um, strike support. You know, going around to organize people to to show up to help picket, and um, you know, talk to the press and all that stuff. Uh, but right, because this that's a huge. This is a huge opportunity, and so we need to know what to ask for. So we need forums where we can talk about what we need to be asking for. Yeah, for sure. Because if we get them to shut down, I mean, do we just say Medicare for all? Do we say up and Citizens United, or yeah. no more, no more money in politics, some other way? What do we do? Yeah, I mean, it's 
Right. I mean, the <clears> tricky <throat> part is U.S. labor law, right? I mean, they can't, uh, they wouldn't be allowed to say we're going to stay out until one of those things that you just listed off is is passed because that's that's outside of the scope of like you know what they could what they could bargain about. I mean, so um, you know if we're well, ha- if we're going right. to have like a, a you know if if there was going to be like a sort of you know general strike uh, that could like actually address one of those issues, then then that would have to be you know organized as like a wildcat thing, which you know would be amazing if uh, if that happened, but. But I was right. just going to say, if we I, I can show solidarity say, with them, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, really specifically about the the rail workers, because you know, I mean, yeah, if they, if there was a successful rail strike, I mean, that'd be a huge step in the right direction. That, like, if, um, you know, it's it's a it's sort of a small thing, although it's actually kind of big. Like that, that this is. Um, the fact that this is even a live issue right now, because the way that the rail workers are regulated is different from from other kinds of workers, because it's you know, because it has the power to paralyze the whole economy the way that it does. Uh, so there was actually a point where it looked like uh, the uh, the federal government, you know, the, the, the Senate, you know, was going to pass something to uh, to force the rail workers to uh, to to accept the um, the the contract that you know, because like the Union representatives had had already negotiated a, a tentative agreement, and you know went to the members to vote on. They they voted it, um, you know they voted it down, uh, and um, and there was and there was initially an attempt to 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 force them to accept it, which obscenely because we have such ridiculous labor laws in this country would have actually been possible, and it was and that was blocked by you know Senator Bernie Sanders. So uh, there is a uh, thank is a, goodness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's like, I think there is actually a way that like some of what the left has done politically the last few years has already paid off there. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it'd be huge if it happened. I would certainly, uh, you know, anything that I find or, or you find and send me or that anybody else finds and send me that you know, could do to, to sort of uh, express solidarity with those workers, I will certainly, you know, stick in the links to uh, this episode and talk about on uh on future episodes but uh i think uh for uh for today thank you sir i appreciate all right yeah well thank you so much for the call bad uh and uh i think for today we are probably going to have to leave it off there but this was really good left is best